Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor Eric Chudler. Professor Chudler is Research Associate Professor in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Washington in Seattle, and is Executive Director and Education Director at the Center for Neurotechnology, also at the University of Washington. In addition to this, Professor Chudler is the founder of the Neuroscience for Kids project and regularly appears in the media discussing various elements of neuroscience and its relevance, not just for adults, but also for children. Eric, it's great to speak to you. Thanks for having me. So as a starting point, perhaps you might tell us what is the background of uh, neuroscience for kids? Well, both of my parents were school teachers. My mom was an elementary school teacher and my dad started out as an elementary school teacher and then worked his way up to be a vice principal and then a principal of public schools in the Los Angeles area. So education and teaching children, I guess, has always been in my blood from when the time I was born. So I saw how much my parents enjoyed teaching kids but I never had any formal training in, in education. Um, but in the early 1990s, in fact, 1990, my daughter was born. And as she went into school, even starting in preschool, the teachers would ask parents to come in and share what they did at work with the children. And so when my daughter was in preschool, I visited her class and taught the kids a little bit about the brain. And these were, you know, three, four, five-year-old children, and they seem to enjoy learning about the brain. And so I followed my daughter's class as she got older and older, and I kept on going back to those teachers' classes. But I felt that perhaps just this one-off going into one school, one classroom at a time really wasn't enough. And in the 1990s, uh, the internet was just starting to explode. And so I thought to myself, well, this internet thing, maybe that's a good way to disseminate information. And so I created a neuroscience for kids to help other teachers all around the world teach their students about uh, the brain. So I kind of taught myself HTML uh, to create this website, Neuroscience for Kids. And then in the mid to late 1990s, I wrote a, a grant to the National Institutes of Health and through that grant, which was awarded, I was able to expand neuroscience for kids, add more information, collaborate with teachers so that I could provide them exactly what they wanted. So through that grant, through the National Institutes of Health, I was able to expand neuroscience for kids. And I still visited my uh, children's class. My son was born in 1993. So it was up until maybe about middle school where my daughter kept on asking me back. And then after middle school, she no longer asked me to come to her class anymore. But through that grant, I was able to create neuroscience for kids and disseminate that information all around the world. So beyond then satisfying that curiosity that, that children can have about, about themselves and about their bodies and about you know, all of those sorts of things, why is it important, do you feel, for children to know more about the brain? Neurological disease is, is so common in society. 
diseases like uh, depression, uh, schizophrenia, uh, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease. So children will likely know someone. It could be a parent, could be a grandparent, it could be one of their friends who perhaps uh, suffered an injury playing sports. Uh, so because neurological disease is so common, it's likely that children will know someone who suffered from a disease. So I think it's very important that they know more about these diseases. Uh, perhaps even as they grow older, uh, they might be able to help with uh, caring for people. They might uh, not be afraid. So perhaps it will reduce stigma attached to mental and neurological disease. So for example, uh, a, a child might have a grandparent who is suffering from Alzheimer's disease and be very confused when their grandparent will no longer recognize them. So by understanding more about the brain, understanding more about the disease process, perhaps can take a little bit of the fear away and will provide a bit of understanding for these uh, for children who have known people or know people who suffer from neurological disease. So I think that's one important aspect of learning about the brain is being able to understand what other people are going through. Uh, second of all, I think it's important that it's an entry into STEM, a science, technology, engineering, and math. And so I think neuroscience, brain research, is a good entry into that. Certainly there are jobs available for students who are interested in the brain, whether it's as researchers in the medical field, the nursing field, or even law, it's possible that neuroscience could be very valuable. So there are jobs available once these children get out of high school and into college and out of college. And then I think the last reason why it's very important for children to know about the brain is because it can encourage a healthy lifestyle. And what I mean by that is by knowing about the brain, how the brain gets its energy from proper diet, how important sleep and exercise is for good brain health. I think that by understanding the brain and understanding how those factors play into overall uh, health uh, is very important for the children to know about. You know, it makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. So if, if we take that then, what would you as a neuroscientist feel are some of the key things that children should know about the brain at a really basic level? Well, the, the Society for Neuroscience, which is an organization of oh, 30 or maybe 40,000 neuroscientists from around the world, uh, they've spent a lot of time asking that exact question that you just asked. And, and that is, uh, you know, why is it important and exactly what concepts should children know about? And the Society for Neuroscience came up with what they call eight core concepts. And of those eight, I think there are two that I think are most important. Uh, one is that over time, the brain changes. In, in other words, experience can change the brain. And this is a concept of, of neuroplasticity. In other words, when the brain is developing, it, it just doesn't stop once you get to be a certain age. Rather, the brain is continually changing and experience can change the way that the brain wires itself. So I think that children knowing that the brain can change over time gives them hope and that they're not in a, the brain is not fixed and that what they do in life can change the way that their brain works. 
So I think that's one fundamental concept that children should all know about. Another fundamental concept, I think, uh, relates to how uh, healthy living, and, and I, I mentioned this before, lifestyle uh, choices can affect not only the uh, a healthy brain, but it can maybe protect against deterioration later in life. So again, knowing how those lifestyle factors change the way the brain works and how it may be protective against disease later in life is something that all children should know about. And, and so when you're talking about those lifestyle factors, I know you mentioned things like sleep, but, but I guess you mean exercise, possibly also alcohol, smoking, those other sorts of things as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm not one of those uh, uh, just say no people <laughs> when it comes to uh, drugs and things like that. Rather, I think the more information someone has about a particular topic, the better they're able to evaluate that. Um, so I think that providing children with information about how different drugs of abuse work, uh, some of the disadvantages of them, some of the, the risks that they pose to their health is very important uh, for children to know about. And that actually, you, that brings up a good point, uh, and that is about critical thinking. And um, there are many myths about the brain that I think uh, children should know about that that just aren't true. Uh, one of the most popular myths about the brain that I think that help with critical thinking is how much of the brain do you use? And so I, I give many talks to the general public, uh, many talks to kids in their classrooms and things like that. And one of the most common myths that people have about the brain is that we only use 10% of the brain. And that is for some some reason, and I've tried to, to track down the history of where this originates. Uh, Hollywood doesn't do us any favors by promoting the myth uh, in, in some of their movies, but uh, it's thought that by a, a good segment of the population that we only use 10% of the brain. And when people say that to me, I ask them exactly, would that mean that if you removed 90% of your brain, you'd be perfectly fine? And the answer is, of course, well, no. And so I, it comes to the point to ask, you know, what, what, when, when someone says that, how do you critically uh, analyze and reason that that could possibly be true? And I, th I think that by, by knowing about the brain, that we can use our critical thinking ability to eliminate some of these myths. Uh, another one of my favorite brain myths is that when the full moon comes out, it causes more mental illness. And there's something powerful about the full moon that causes more accidents, more violence, and just more crime. And when you look at the statistics, and there, there are more than 100 scientific papers that have tried to find a correlation between the phase of the moon and any abnormal behavior. And what you'll find is that most of those papers that have looked for such a correlation, it just doesn't happen. Yet a large segment of the population believes that when the full moon comes out, you're going to be seeing a lot more abnormal human behavior. And it's just not there. And so I think being able to critically analyze some of the things that we see in the media, some of the things that we watch in movies. Uh, certainly, I, I enjoy science fiction as much as the, the next guy, but uh, we have to realize what is fact and what is fiction. And I think neuroscience provides us a way to do that. And it's a good entry into critical thinking. 
And I guess as well, another myth that comes to mind is that old uh, chestnut about madness and creativity, and which could, I guess, be used negatively as well in the sense of if you're not slightly mad, then you're not going to be creative. And, and so there's, there's other things that might flow from that. Right. You can always think of individual examples and things like that. But uh, again, thinking about what it really means and, and rather than cherry pick individual examples, so look at everything as a, the, the total body of evidence, I think is a way to get to the correct answer. So those concepts you were talking about there and the, the way you described what you might uh, talk to, to children about, you know, makes a lot of sense. How does that then differ from what you might talk to a general audience of adults about? Because I'm, I'm sure they'd also be interested in those concepts of the 10% or, or rather the, the not 10%, as you put it, and, and uh, the, the full moon and so on. Is it just about the level at which you pitch it or are there specific things that are more relevant for adults versus children? Many of the, the topics that I talk about with adults are exactly the same that I talk about with younger audiences. I might use different language, but the basic concepts that I'm trying to relate to adult audiences are the same that I use for children. I, I might focus more about how to reduce risk later in life when I talk to an adult audience, you know, about diet, sleep, exercise, again, to prevent mental decline later in life or reduce the risk of mental decline later in life. But the concepts are, are really the same. Um, sometimes I use a PowerPoint presentation for children and it's the same slides that I use for the adult audience. So really it's the, the same topics, which I think are important for children and adults, maybe a, a slight uh, uh, slant on you know, uh, later life choices and risk factors for adults. But the basic concepts are really the same that I try to relate to children and adults. And, and so if we think then about some of those those basic elements of, of brain hygiene, I know you, again, you mentioned sleep and so on, but is it about providing children with say a a recipe or a framework that, that you know these are some really great things you should do or providing them as you said with the opening to, to critical thinking to evaluate the different options that are available to them in terms of how they might go about looking after themselves and and growing stronger and bigger and healthier as they as they progress and mature I think it's a little bit of both. And so we know from the literature what uh, is best or using the, the best data that we have at the time. We know that, for example, a certain number of hours is optimal for different ages. And so that can be recommended. Uh, different people have different um, uh, levels, uh, I guess you can say. Uh, but there's a recommended range, for example, of sleep. For diet, we know that a varied diet of fruits and vegetables and um, are, are very good. Um, so I guess that can be used as a recipe. Uh, but things like exercise, it's both mental exercise and physical exercise. There are recommended levels that can be, I hate to use the word prescribed, um, but we know that a certain number of minutes is optimal. And so it's very difficult to tailor a prescription of diet, sleep, mental and physical exercise. And something like mental exercise, we don't really know what's prescriptive. Is it 
two crossword puzzles every day or you know, met some type of mental gymnastics. We really don't know what's prescriptive about mental exercise. We know a little bit more about physical exercise and, and how that benefits. Um, but we really don't have a prescription that can be used for all people at all ages. And so it's providing the data. And I think even, you know, teenagers, they can critically analyze some of these data. And I, th I think that's important for them to do, to look at the, the literature. Uh, it's difficult for them to maybe read a scientific paper, but with guidance, you can break down why a researcher did a particular experiment, the methods that they used, how they analyzed their results, and then how they interpreted their results. So for older children, I think uh, with guidance, they can understand some of the basic literature and critically analyze it. But as far as a, a prescription for diet, exercise, and sleep, we really don't have that. We, we have you know, estimates, but one recipe doesn't fit all people. I'm curious about the, the point you made there about mental activity and the mental exercise, if, if you will, as opposed to physical exercise, particularly given the, the shift over the last 10, 12 months to lockdown and homeschooling in a lot of uh, a lot of places and children spending a lot more time in front of screens particularly if they're at home and their parents are working and, and can't spend the same amount of time uh, engaging with them uh, is there is there any research in terms of say children's brain hygiene and mental health into the effect of overuse of screens and, and so on uh, well, as far as the COVID-19 pandemic goes, it's a little bit too early. Um, so we're, we're about a, a year into lockdowns and, and schooling from home and things like that. Um, but, you know, the same problems arose when, when television first came out and that somehow television is going to rot uh, someone's brain. And that, that really isn't the case. I, I, and it may be the same in that sitting at a computer for a long time takes away from something that we should be doing. So, and it's just like TV, rather than sitting in front of a screen, we should be outside exercising. So it's not the exact sitting at a screen that's bad, rather it's taking away from something else that we should be doing. Uh, but as far as uh, school from home, uh, everyone working from home, it's still a little bit too early to come to any conclusions about any problems that may, it may have caused. Uh, certainly, uh, I think schools are coming to the realization that it's just not healthy sitting in front of a computer for hours on end. And some schools that I know and some teachers that I've talked to are breaking up the day and so that their students are not sitting in front of the computer for hours on end. Um, but I think that in the next uh, year or two, we'll start to get some uh, answers to some of the questions that you just asked about the, the possible problems of sitting in front of a screen and, and doing school from home. But at this time, I have not seen any data that has led me to any conclusions. No, and, and I, I absolutely take take the point about, about, about COVID. And, and I guess it was, um, I was thinking more about that point you made about the television and how you know when I was a child it was like if you watch TV for too too long you'll have square eyes and your brain will turn to mush um, so it's yeah I, I but I can see uh, see where you're coming from there
And, and, and I mean, like, would most, when many people watch TV or sit in front of a screen watching videos, there's a, a sugary drink and they're eating chips or some cookies and that's just not healthy. And so it's not a, a, a watching the TV or it's not watching the video. It's some of the other things that they're doing, like eating unhealthy food and not getting the exercise that they should be getting that contributes to some of the problems. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Talking of um, you know some some problems that have emerged, you know, in recent years there's, there's been a lot of discussion about the effects of, of concussion uh, and and brain related injuries. And you know, obviously, as parents, you want your children to be active and to be engaged in sport. But there's obviously also downsides. So obviously, the physical sports like rugby or American football, the, you know, the risk of, of, of head injuries, even in games like soccer, which would appear to be safer on a certain level. What what are the implications for, for children of, of, of this sort of growing awareness of the risks of concussion? And, and how do you talk to children about them? Yes, yeah, so sports-related concussions in children and adults is a serious, serious issue. So I think the first thing that anyone who is, plays a sport, whether they're starting or uh, even if they're further along in their athletic careers, is to, to know the rules of the sport. So in, in American football, they've uh, changed rules uh, recently to uh, ban certain types of tackling. So you can't lead with your head and you can't lead with your helmet or you'll be thrown out of the game. Uh, so knowing the rules of the sport uh, and then following the rules of the sport are also very important. Uh, second, knowing proper technique. So in soccer, uh, my, my daughter played soccer as she was uh, growing up. Uh, knowing proper technique to head the ball uh, is very important to reduce the risk of concussion. Uh, and then if someone does suffer a concussion, it's important that not only the player realize uh, that they may have suffered a concussion, but it's up to parents and coaches to recognize what a concussion looks like. So many people believe that to suffer a concussion, you have to lose consciousness, which is just is not correct. A concussion is any change in mental status. So that can be dizziness, feeling a little bit uh, queasy or nauseous. So there are, there are symptoms of a concussion that players, fellow players, coaches and parents must recognize and then know what to do if one of the players has suffered a concussion to following the, the proper protocol if someone has suffered a concussion. And then finally, uh, not going back to play until someone has recovered from a concussion because we know from research that if you have suffered one concussion, if you go back too soon, it's more likely that you'll suffer a second concussion and that second concussion or third concussion will be more severe. So it's making a full recovery before going back into play. So knowing the rules, knowing the technique, knowing how to recognize a concussion and then waiting until a concussion has recovered, a, a person has recovered before returning to play. And I think that's true for all sports. Uh, there uh, certainly American football has um, uh, higher incidence, but uh, soccer uh, is also um, not so much from hitting the ball, but player to player, player to ground, or even player to goalpost uh, is um, all possible ways of suffering a concussion. And are children re receptive to that message, or does it perhaps depend on how? 
focused they are on excelling and, and achieving in their chosen sport. Well, it's, it's a little bit mixed. And that's why I think it's important those that those things that I just mentioned are instilled in children when they first start playing. And so they recognize that a concussion is a very, very serious issue. And so by starting early, it's important that these children know what to do if they suffer a head injury. And certainly I, I've played sports for my entire life. And I know that as a player, I, I hate coming out of the game. But it's a point that must be instilled in the players and coaches and parents must know that if a player has suffered a head injury, that it's very important for them to be removed from the game. Players might not like it, but I think if that idea is sorry, put into their heads early, uh, they'll be much more receptive to it. And I guess it's, a, it's something I've seen in, in certain sports, at least here in Ireland, where rather than necessarily having the, the old-fashioned substitution uh, approach of, you know, you're on and then you're off and you can't go back on, a lot of sports are bringing in this rotation approach. So it's okay to go off because you'll then go back on again. So perhaps taking some of the stigma uh, away from uh, from those issues. If, um, you know, if for, for any parents or, or, or teachers who, who've been listening to the discussion, who probably are not experts in the brain, what, what is the best way for them to engage positively and, and proactively with, with brain science and to, to introduce their, their children to it? Well, it's possible for parents who have uh, maybe parent groups here in the States, we have PTAs, parent teacher associations, uh, individual teachers and parent groups or associations can invite neuroscientists into their classrooms or into their groups. So one international event that uh, was established by the Dana Foundation and the Society for Neuroscience is something called Brain Awareness Week. And this is a week that occurs in March, so it's coming up pretty soon. And it's a time for neuroscientists to get out of their labs and interact with the public. And so the Dana Foundation has a, has a website that has a list of uh, probably hundreds of scientists from around the world who are interested in interacting with the public. Uh, they're interested in talking to parents, talking to children, talking to teachers. And so the Dana Foundation is a great resource where uh, parents and teachers can interact and find neuroscientists who they want to work with. And I think neuroscientists, uh, especially some of the younger ones, can uh, act as fantastic role models uh, for kids. Um, these are highly motivated uh, students, graduate students, postdoctoral researchers, and uh, you know academic neuroscientists who are interested in interacting with kids. And so Brain Awareness Week is just a good way to focus attention on the brain. So um, there are many neuroscientists who are, want to reach out to the public and work with students and teachers. Okay, brilliant. So you, you mentioned the, the, the Dana Foundation there and Brain Awareness Week. If people are curious, where would you suggest they, they take a look perhaps online for, for further resources to your, your own website perhaps? Sure. Uh, my website uh, has been around for a long time, uh, and I, I do have many, many resources available. Uh, yes, the Dana Foundation is a great a way to, they have basic information about the brain. As I said, they coordinate uh, many of the brain, aware, uh, brain Awareness Week activities, and they have lots of resources. 
Um, the Society for Neuroscience also has many resources. Um, on my Neuroscience for Kids website, I have a newsletter that's sent out every month and I, I pick a, a, a website that discusses the, the brain and I guess I'm on year 25 or so. So 25 times 12 is a couple hundred websites that I've selected that I think are, are great places where people can learn about the brain. Professor Eric Chudler, it's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. song electronic beat time and dream sequence by lorenzo's music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license